Friends, I wonder, have you ever felt like God was an absentee father? I see some gentle nods around the room. Like God created this whole thing. He set it in motion only to leave us when we need him the most. You ever had one of those dark nights of the soul? You know, I could rattle off statistic after statistic of the devastation that comes to a home where the father abdicates his place and responsibility. Children in homes like this fight an uphill battle for success. They, not only is it hard socially, but with all the father wounds that they've experienced where dad is missing in action. And I wonder if we're willing to be honest this morning, does it ever feel like God himself is an absentee father? And just as an absentee father leaves a, a, a void in the home, an absentee God leaves a void in the soul. It's a fair question to ask. And I think it's a question that we've all asked in one way or another. And if you haven't asked that question, maybe it's because you've been too afraid to ask that question. Because you're afraid of the answer. And as we come to the Bible this morning, it answers that question head on. And in fact, as we come to that question this morning, the Bible invites us to come and to gather around and listen to the old, old story. You see, instead of statistics and lectures, instead of a theology class, most often when the Bible addresses some of the most tough questions we could ever face as humans, it gives us a story. It invites us into a story. And this morning, there's this story addresses this question head on as we bring the book of Genesis to a close. And so this morning, we're picking back up in our sermon series through Genesis. Now we're in part three called Preservation and Suffering. And these last chapters of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50, they form one cohesive story. A lot of times when we go through the book, it's, it's, it's a story after another story after another story. Chapter by chapter, things are changing. This is really one big story. It's like a, 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 a novella. It's got one continuous story. And it's a true story, but it's a story nonetheless. And as we enter into these final chapters, we're confronted with this question. Where is God in the midst of my suffering? Where is God in the midst of my suffering? Is he checked out like an absentee father? And in the beauty and brilliance of the word of God, it answers this question through a story. And the beauty of stories is that they invite us in, don't they? As we read the story, we're able to identify with the characters. We relate to similar experiences. And as we walk with the characters in the story... They actually help us to process our own thoughts and emotions. Why do you think we read stories to children? Not just because they captivate us, not because we all like a good story, but one of the reasons is because they help uh, invite them into their own exploration of emotions and experiences. That's why most of the Bible is narrative. It's a story. And in this story, chapters 37 through 50, it's a story of betrayal and bloodthirst. It's a story of a dysfunctional family. And not just any random family, but God's family, his chosen family. The family through whom God has promised that he would never leave. The 
the family God has promised he would never forsake. It's actually the family he created. He began with Abraham. He drew him out. He said, I will make you one day father of many nations. And this family is under threat. Their own infighting seeks to divide them. There's a coming famine that seeks to starve them. Sin and suffering is hell-bent on destroying them. And any hope we have of being the recipients of God's rescue plan. And so we begin this story this morning in Genesis 37. You know what? God is nowhere to be found. I don't know if you were paying attention to the details as John was reading this morning. But his name isn't even mentioned at all. Not a single mention of God at all. And so it begs the question, where is God? Why doesn't he stop all this dysfunction? Why doesn't he stop the bitterness? Why doesn't he stop this evil plan from unfolding? Why doesn't he say something? Or better yet, why doesn't he do something? Has God given up on him? Has he checked out? Is God an absentee father? And that's the question we want to ask this morning as we begin in Genesis 37. Where is God in all of this mess? And as we work through the passage this morning, we're going to find that though God may seem absent, he is ever present. Though he seems distant, God is working and weaving every single detail towards his good and gracious purposes. In fact, all the sin, every single sin is only weaving the scarlet thread of God's redemptive tapestry. Every single ounce of suffering that every character goes through is actually turned into meaning and purpose so that nothing is wasted, nothing is meaningless, and all of it works together for good, not only for God's glory, but also for the good of his children. And so over the next several weeks, as we enter into this long story, we have the opportunity to ask, where is God in the midst of our suffering? You might be looking at your life right now, thinking about the circumstances. You look around the world, right? The headlines, everything that's happening, and you just can't help but wonder, God, have you checked out? Where are you when we need you the most? And so that's where we're headed this morning. Here's the big truth, the principle that I want you to see today. That despite sin and suffering, God is ever present and his gracious purposes prevail. If I could draw one big overarching principle and truth to anchor our souls this morning and be this. Despite sin and suffering, God is ever present and his gracious purposes prevail. And we'll see that unfold over three movements in this story. So first in verses 1 to 11, we'll see that sin is dysfunctional and devastating. As we enter into the sin of this family, we find how dysfunctional it is and how it leaves a trail of devastation in its wake. And in the last half of the story, chapters 12, or, uh, verses 12 to 36, we'll see that though God may seem absent, he is ever-present and attentive. And then finally at the end, as we reflect back on the story, we'll see that God's purposes are often accomplished through uncomfortable grace. God's purposes are often accomplished through uncomfortable grace. So let's start together in verse 1 to see that sin is dysfunctional and devastating. Hear again the word of the Lord. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. 
Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob by the way, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him, could not speak peacefully to him. Now if you remember in part two of our sermons through Genesis, Jacob had made it back to the promised land with his 12 sons, his beloved wife Rachel, Remember, he loved Rachel. She had given him two sons, Joseph and then Benjamin. And then she died when Benjamin was born. So all the love that he had for his beloved wife, Rachel, is then given to this son, Joseph. And we learn that Jacob loved Joseph more than his any other sons. He was the favored son of his favored wife, Rachel. Remember J- Jacob's uncle Laban? had tricked him. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, but in the morning, behold, it was Leah, and he had tricked him, right? And then uh, uh, Joseph never gave her the time of day, even after she bore son, after son, after son. He never cared for her, never gave her attention. He also had two other concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah, and they also bore him sons. And so you have this large, dysfunctional family, and there's a clear favorite. And Jacob's not even shy about it. Sometimes parents try to hide their favoritism. Jacob's not even shy about it. He makes Joseph this robe. And the Bible calls it a robe of many colors. Now let me tell you about this technicolor dream coat. The Hebrew word that we translate many colors is a difficult one to translate. It only occurs one other time uh, in scripture. And, it, and it's referred to uh, David's daughter Tamar and a robe that, she, that he gave her. And this robe, is, it's a, uh, it signifies uh, importance. It signifies royalty. It, it basically sets Joseph out as the overseer of his brothers. Another way to think about it, another way you can actually translate this is a, a robe with long sleeves. Now, why is that important? Well, if you've got a robe of long sleeves, you're probably not going to get out there in the mud, right? The other guys going out there would have had tunics with short sleeves to, to keep the dirt off of, uh, you know, that when you're you know, out there shepherding and digging around. Uh, if you've got a long robe, it's going to get dirty. So it's a robe of significance. It's not just like a nice jacket. It signifies importance and prominence. It's not a blue-collar robe. So what Jacob has effectively done is he's taken this younger son and he's put him in charge and above his older sons. Another way to think about it is the blessing of being the firstborn son, this inheritance and this role of leadership that should have been given to Reuben as the first eldest son is given to Joseph. Joseph is in charge of his brothers. He's in authority over them. And so when the Bible says they went out to pasture the flocks, Joseph wasn't going with them as a fellow shepherd. He's going out there as their boss. He's in charge. He's out there taking notes and he's reporting back to Jacob. In fact, we learned that, um, that Joseph brings back a bad report to his father about his brothers. And this word for bad report in Hebrew... Uh, means like slander. It means a fabrication. It's like taking the truth and twisting it a little bit. In Proverbs 10, 18, that same word is translated as slander. 
So Joseph's not humbled by his elevated position as he should be, right? He should have been thinking, man, I, I really don't deserve this. But my father has given me this place of leadership that should have humbled him, that should have uh, made him want to uh, uh, do really well and to, to help his brothers rise to the occasion. But he's a punk. He's tattletaling. He's fabricating. He's twisting the truth. And he makes life harder for his brothers. So you've got these ten older brothers... They're deprived of their father's love and attention. Then you add insult to injury. Jacob has flipped the social norms upside down to treat the younger brother as if he's the oldest. And while these sons are out there working hard to build up their father's estate, it's what they're doing, right? They're not working for themselves. They're, they're building up their father's inheritance. All the while, little punk Joseph is gaining from the fruit of their labor. The more they increase their father's estate, the more that's going to go to Joseph with his double portion. Joseph is living this privileged life, never getting his hands dirty, never having to roll up his sleeves of his precious robe. And if that weren't enough, he makes it harder on his brothers by bringing these false reports to his dad. And what's the result? Three times the Bible say the brothers hate him. The brothers hate him hate him. In fact, it says they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even say shalom to him. And then we're told in verses 5 to 11 that Joseph had two dreams. The first dream, he and his brothers are out harvesting gain, and they're all coming away with their bundles of grain, and all of their bundles of grain bow down to his bundle of grain. Now, I know sometimes, like, we have dreams, and it's like, what did that mean, you know? This one's really clear. You don't need a, 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 an interpreter. Everyone understands what this dream means, that all of his brothers are one day going to bow down to him. And then he has a second dream. And this one's a little more grandiose. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars all bow down to him. Now, Joseph could have had these dreams and pondered them in his heart and, and asked, like, what, what do these things mean? And, 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 and in a Hebrew mindset, dreams came from the Lord. So he could have been saying, Lord, why are you telling me all of this? What are you preparing me for? But instead, Joseph goes and says, hey, guys, I had these dreams. Let me tell you about them. And he took the opportunity to tell his brothers about the dreams, which only produced further animosity and division now i'll let you be the judge is joseph naive is he just immature is he just a typical 17 year old or is he trying to rub his favored position in their noses either way the result is clear animosity and hatred are starting to brew beneath the surface all the sinful patterns if you've been tracking with genesis you know, growing up and I heard these stories, I thought these were like perfect people, people who never did anything wrong. And I must have just missed all of these details because these, these are really terrible people. They're not role models. If you've been tracking through Genesis, you know that brother against brother animosity is quite common in this family. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. I mean, the sin of favoritism in Jacob's own life. 
destroyed his family. And you would think that Jacob growing up would have said, if there's one thing I'm not going to do as a father, it's favor any of my sons. It destroyed my relationship with my brother. It destroyed my family. If there's one thing I'm not going to do, it's repeat the sins of my father. And what do you see Jacob doing? Repeating the sins of his father. And instead of pursuing healing, Jacob perpetuated that sin and it cut deep into his own family. And we don't have time to go back and recount all the details of Jacob's life. But suffice to say, he's not a model husband or father. And here's something I find deeply tragic about this whole situation. If you've been tracking again through Genesis, you realize that with each generation, the line of promise. Remember, God has promised through their line to bring about the, the coming wounded warrior who will bring about the, the restoration and redemption of the world. And it always goes through one son. And so in one sense, I get some of the fighting and jockeying for position to be the chosen one. But with this family, God does something different. It's not going to just go through one person. The blessing of being in the line of promise is extended to all of the sons. God is expanding his redemptive program. The chosen line in that sense to be God's chosen people is going to be promised to all 12 sons. They all, in other words, get to be the recipients and beneficiaries of the promise as God's redemptive program is ever increasing and expanding. What begins with one person in Abraham was always intended to have this crescendo effect, right? That many sons and daughters would come to him. These 12 sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in that sense, there, there shouldn't be any jockeying. There should be no reason for rivalry. But the rivalry and the bitterness persist and the toxicity and dysfunction are brewing beneath the surface. And it's only a matter of time before it all erupts. Do you guys remember Mount St. Helens in Washington State? I remember, I wasn't born when it erupted, but I remember learning about it in school. And so you can go right now and you can Google Mount St. Helens. You can look at before pictures. Look at pictures before May 18th, 1980. And if you go look up these pictures, you will see one of the most picturesque landscapes. It's a snow-capped mountain. Down in the valley is Spirit Lake. It's beautiful. I mean, like when you think of the Pacific Northwest, it's like it's the postcard. But if you look at pictures after May 18, 1980, you wonder where'd the mountain go? It lost over a thousand feet in elevation. You see, beneath the snow capped mountains of Mount St. Helen was brewing a destructive volcano. Now, geologists knew that there, it was an active volcano, and they knew that it was near eruption. But what they didn't know was the sheer force and power of the eruption that would take place on May 18, 1980. So on that morning, it was a Sunday morning, after a 5.1 magnitude earthquake, the entire north face of the mountain collapsed releasing superheated gases and trapped magma in a massive lateral explosion. Everything within eight miles of the blast was wiped out almost instantly. 
It was, more pow- it was 1,600 times more powerful than the atomic bomb. Think about this. The resulting shockwave from this explosion rolled over forest another 19 miles, leveling 100-year-old trees. Just the shockwave leveled a forest for 19 miles. The area devastated by the direct blast forest covered an area of 230 square miles. That was the first blast. Then shortly after was a second lateral blast that released um, a mushroom cloud of ash and gases more than 12 miles into the air. Over the next few days, an estimated 540 million tons of ashes drifted up 2,200 square miles covering seven states. The 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption was easily the most destructive in U.S. history. And all the while, beneath the surface, inside of Mount St. Helens, there was something brewing under the surface that was about to blow the top off the mountain and nobody knew it. And the same thing is true with Jacob's family. All that sin, all that bitterness and dysfunction was brewing. Now if you were on the outside looking in, just seeing this family, you would have thinking, man, these are God's chosen people. They're prosperous I mean, you look at a man with 12 sons and you think, man, the Lord has blessed them. Their estate is growing. They have herds. They've got power and prominence in the region. region. They're established in the land. And yet, something was brewing deep down inside that was about to blow the top off this family. First thing I want us to see this morning is the stark reality that sin is dysfunctional and it's devastating. And we can't just sit by and let things brew like that. Because it will blow the top off. Now we need to keep moving in the story. Because we want to see that though God may seem absent, he is ever present and attentive. Look with me at verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks, father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, he said to him, here am I. So he said to them, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. So as the story goes, we find out that uh, Jacob's sons have taken the flocks near Shechem, which is about 40 to 50 miles from where they are in the valley of Hebron. And Jacob sends Joseph to go check on him. And again, that would have been a normal part of his role as the overseer of his brothers. But when he gets there, the Bible tells us they're nowhere to be found in Shechem. So Joseph's wandering around in the fields. Verse 5 says, a man found him. And the man asked, what are you seeking? Joseph said, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone far away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them. At Dothan. So imagine he's out there thinking that they're going to be there and they're not there. And there's a man. He just happens to find them and say, hey, what are, you, what are you looking for? And he tells them. And it just so happens that this man has heard that they're going to Dothan. So with this information, Joseph goes out to find them. Verse 18. 
They, these brothers, saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So imagine the brothers. They've traveled far away to get away from their brother. And somehow he's found them. And all that bitterness, all that animosity, all that jealousy comes to the surface. And they want blood. Now you might be thinking, man, that escalated quickly, right? I mean, they haven't even had like an argument. How do these guys go from jealousy to murder just like that? Well, if you remember back in Genesis 34, these are the same brothers who killed an entire village for defiling their sister Dinah. These guys have already tasted blood. They've killed before and they're ready to do it again. They've never forgotten about Joseph's dreams. And in their minds, if these dreams are prophetic, then we want to put an end to that prophecy forever. There's no way we will bow down to him if he's dead. Verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him in this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then we get this narrative note that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to their father. Then Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. So you remember Reuben? He's the oldest brother and he tries to be the voice of reason. He says, hey, we can rough him up a bit, throw him in this pit, but let's not kill him. Now if you remember Reuben, he's not exactly on good terms with his father. You go back in Genesis 35, you can read about that. But Reuben had slept with his father's concubine Bilhah and it, 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 it put a rift between him and his father. Again, Messed up family, okay? And so Reuben's thinking, listen, if I save Joseph and I bring him back to my father and I tell Father Jacob about all that happened and how, you know, I as Reuben, the good son, did all of this to save his beloved son, maybe that'll put me back in good graces with my father. So the other brothers agree not to kill him and they throw him in a pit. See, when Joseph arrives, they strip off his robe and here the Hebrew language is really graphic. This word for stripping of him of, of his robe is the same Hebrew word for um, skinning an animal. It's a violent scene. They throw him down into this pit. And then verse 30, 25. And then they sat down to eat. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Verse 25 may be one of the more vivid pictures of depravity in the whole book of Genesis. After violently beating Joseph, stripping him of his robe, throwing him in a pit, what do they do? They sit down to eat a sandwich. I mean, you got to be calloused. Your conscience has to be seared after an act of violence like that to go, hey, you want a bite to eat? No remorse, 
No second guessing. It's just casual violence. And then we find out a group of Ishmaelite traders happen to be passing by on their way to Egypt. And so Judah says, hey, let's make a quick buck. Let's sell him. And that's exactly what they do. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit, apparently he left for a little bit, and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors uh, and brought it to their father and said, this we found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And Jacob identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins. And he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, no I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Verse 36. Meanwhile... The Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So as the story goes, apparently Reuben had left, leaving Judah in charge. And when he returns, Joseph's no longer in the pit. He's been sold for profit. And his plan to return him safely to his father is foiled. And you hear the, the grief. He's like, where, where can I go now? Like his plan to get back in with dad is gone. But as other brothers have a, a plan, they take one out of their father's playbook. They slaughter a goat, dip it in blood. So it looks like he's been torn to pieces. If you remember, Jacob had deceived his father, uh, Isaac, with a goat. And just like Jacob deceived his father, Isaac, with the skin of a goat, so now his children are deceiving their father by means of a goat. And Jacob believes the lie, mourns the loss of his favorite son. And then in verse 36, we get a very significant detail. That Joseph has been sold, not only just randomly in Egypt, but to Potiphar, an officer in the house of Pharaoh. Now, I know we quickly moved to the details of the story. Who's missing? Who's missing in the story? There seems to be a character missing. Where is God? As one wrong turn after another happens, why isn't he intervening? Why would he allow his chosen family to treat each other this way? I mean, Joseph's been a punk for sure, but he certainly doesn't deserve to be beaten, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. Where's God? Has he checked out? And this is where I think if we're paying attention to the way the story's being written... We can see God in the details. Here's what I mean. There's no mention of God anywhere. He never speaks, he never does anything. He's never even referred to, prayed to. He seems to be utterly, absolutely, completely absent. But I think we can see that he is ever present. Theologian Willem Van Gemmeren writes this. Joseph's brothers heartlessly sell their younger brother into slavery... Here and throughout this account, however, the reader is being trained to see that the apparent hiddenness of God does not indicate the uncaring absence of God. What Van Gemmeren is help, helping us see is that though God seems hidden, he is ever present. Now just think about all the things that had to happen to get to this point. 
Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers. He could have decided to to let this trip go, but he sends them. The brothers happen to have left Shechem for the more remote middle of nowhere Dothan where there would be no witnesses to all of their treachery. When Joseph can't find his brothers in Shechem, there just happens to be this guy out there in the fields who happened to hear his brothers talking about going to Dothan. At the right moment, Reuben speaks up to stop the mob mentality of his brothers from killing Joseph outright. There just happens to be this pit nearby where there's no water in it to throw Joseph into. Then, we're not even told why, Reuben just leaves. Because if he stayed, there's no way he's letting Joseph get thrown uh, or get, get sold into slavery, right? Joseph is his line back to his father. But in his absence, there's opportunity for his other brothers to sell them. And there just happens to be this caravan of Ishmaelite traders right there. And they just so happen to be heading to Egypt. And when they bring the report to their father, Jacob believes the lie. See, if Jacob didn't believe the lie, he would, go, he would have gone looking for his son. And Joseph happens to be bought into the house of Pharaoh. Now, why is all of this important? Why are all of these details incredibly significant? Because if you know the story, you know there is a catastrophic famine that is coming into the region in a few years that will wipe everyone out. I know we don't get famine. We live in a world of supermarkets. We don't, we don't know what it's like when, like if it doesn't rain, if there's not food here, we can just get food from somewhere else. But when, when famine strikes a land, it means starvation and it means death. And it is coming to this region. And nobody knows it's coming. Nobody's preparing for it. No one knows. And it will be devastating for this region. And yet, Joseph is sold into the house of Potiphar. And spoiler alert, Joseph, through a series of rise and falls and humiliations and exaltations, he is going to rise to a place of leadership and prominence in Egypt. And not only that, God is going to use Joseph. He's going to help him, give him insight into some dreams to warn them that famine is coming, that they need to prepare for it so that when it comes, this region will not only survive, but thrive. And not only that, but God will give Joseph so much favor in Egypt that he's able to bring his entire family, settle them into the nice area of Goshen with protection and plentiful provision, not only to endure the famine, but to survive and thrive. They will grow and multiply and become the nation of Israel. And at the end of the book, when Joseph has all of this hindsight and he's looking back on his life and the story that God has been writing, he'll say this in Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Friends, when all is said and done, When the fullness of time comes, 
God's plan will be seen for what it has been all the time, good. God meant it for good. He took all of their evil and in his hands, he turned it to good. In fact, he takes all of their evil, their desire to kill him, get rid of him, and he actually uses it to preserve their very life. Now, does Joseph know that right now? Sitting in the pit, getting sold into this caravan? Did God whisper into his ear, hey, Joseph, don't worry. Over the next 30 years, here's what I'm going to do. No, he doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know any of it. But every detail, every coincidence, every seeming happenstance is actually the handiwork of God. He is orchestrating and ensuring that nothing, not even their sin, not even their evil intentions can stop the promises and purposes of God. Pastor Sam Amati says it like this, God's sovereignty figures largely in the Joseph story because God wants us to see how he puts himself in impossible situations and yet finds a way to keep his covenant promises. Don't miss this line. Joseph highlights how God's providence secures God's promises. The reason God can make the kinds of promises he does to us is because God is sovereign and in control. So there's nothing hanging in the balance. There is no outside force, not even our own stupidity and sin, that can thwart the promises of God. Now you might be thinking, hey, that sounds great for Joseph, but what about me? Where is God in the midst of my suffering and trials? And here's what I can tell you. The same God who is ever-present, though he may seem absent, the same God who is attentive to even the most seemingly circumstantial details is at work in your life too. Just because you don't understand what God is doing doesn't mean God isn't working. In fact, we're given a similar promise. Like Genesis 50, 20, we're given a similar promise in the book of Romans, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 28, that assures us of this same reality. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, including your suffering, including your sin, including all the things that you wish weren't in your life happening right now, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, this is just one of those verses that you have got to get into your heart. You don't need to just merely memorize it. You need to bring it into, uh, into the deepest recesses of your heart so that in times of trial and suffering, it is just flowing out from you. It is the promise that enables you to endure through times of suffering and trial. God is working all things together for good. And there will come a day, I promise you, there will come a day when you have the same kind of hindsight as Joseph. There will come a day when you're looking back on all of those trials, on all of the suffering, on all of the failed decisions, and you'll come back to those moments. And when you have that kind of hindsight, when you can see all that God sees, you will say, 
God, you are good and you do good. Friends, sin is dysfunctional. It's incredibly devastating. But our sin does not get the final word. Joseph's sin, his brother's sin, his father's sin, they do not get the final word in this story. And though we can't see what God is doing, and though we may not understand it, it does not mean that God is absent. In fact, far from it, God is ever-present and attentive so that his gracious purposes prevail. Now, we need to wrap up this chapter. And I want us to see that God's purposes are often accomplished through uncomfortable grace. Uncomfortable grace. Now, we've already worked through the details of the story. This last point is really just a reflection, thinking back on this story as a whole. Now, think about Joseph and Jacob and his brothers. Together, they will make up the leadership of the people of God. Through them, these 12 brothers will become 12 tribes who will become the nation of Israel. And they are supposed to be, in God's providence and plan, a light to the nations that will usher in the Messiah and the redemption of the world. They are, in other words, blessed to be a blessing. And yet, where we find them right now, they are in need of so much grace. For starters, they need forgiveness for all of their sin. And not only that, they need God to step in and form and shape their characters so that they can become this nation. And it comes through humiliation and what I call uncomfortable grace. Here's what I mean. Take Joseph, for example. He's a punk. He's arrogant. He needs to be humbled. He's not ready to be the leader that his people need. He's brash and mature. He's overconfident. He's self-centered. He needs to be brought low in order to become the leader his people needed. His brothers needed to be humbled. They needed to see that deception and revenge do not bring about the purposes of God. Jacob needs to repent of his sin of favoritism. He needs to see that his sin brought undue wounds and scars to his children. And so what does God do? He takes their sin and he uses it, not to condemn them, but what? To shape them. He accomplishes his big ultimate purposes of redemption and yet at the same time, he uses it to shape them individually. Paul David Tripp says it like this. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Don't miss that. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Friends, that's called grace. His grace might oftentimes feel uncomfortable, but God cares more about your growth than your comfort. God cares more about your growth than your comfort. So there are going to be times in your life where the only way to produce the kind of change that God intends for your life is to take you through situations and circumstances that you would never choose to go on your own. So look at me. If you are God's child, if you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, and you right now are going through a particularly difficult time in your life, do not put God on the dock of your judgment seat. Your trial, your difficulty is not a sign of God's unfaithfulness or his inattentiveness or an evidence of his absence in your life. Don't question his faithfulness and love to you. He's already proven that on the cross. 
Rather, see the consistent page after page reality of the Bible that difficulties are often the sure sign of his love. He's using them to form and shape your character. He cares more about your growth than your comfort. So he will take you places you've never intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And it's okay to call it uncomfortable because it is. But also call it grace because it is. He is working through the details of your life to form and shape you. This is what Romans 5 says. Not only that, but Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God loves you. He's put his spirit in you. And he will bring you through trials and sufferings so that you can produce endurance and character and hope. And of course, the greatest example of this is seen in Jesus Christ. You remember that verse in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10? For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now think about this verse. This verse doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't born perfect or that he was lacking in some other way. Perfect here is from that Greek word telos that means um, a completed end or the result of a goal. In other words, Jesus as the founder of our salvation and bringing many sons and daughters to glory would pave the way through his own suffering. So that Jesus knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be hurt. He knows what it is to go through a world full of sin and suffering. That's why he is a compassionate high priest. That's why he's an empathetic and sympathetic savior. He knows what it means to suffer. He suffered the ultimate humiliation. The ultimate scorn on the cross. Just as Joseph suffered in silence, so Jesus, like a lamb, was led to the slaughter, did not open his mouth. Just like Joseph was sold for a handful of shekels of silver, Jesus was sold for a couple handfuls of silver. Just like Joseph suffered in order to be exalted to save his people from famine, so even greater still, Jesus suffered in order to be exalted to finally and ultimately and forever save his people from the famine of sin where was God when Jesus suffered why didn't God intervene he was there he and he didn't intervene because he knew it would lead to the salvation of the world a greater good it's okay to say amen right that's the gospel it should stir us on the cross, he was working out the greatest good the world would ever know. Friends, sin is dysfunctional and it is devastating and suffering is incredibly difficult. But it does not get the final word. Our suffering doesn't mean that God is absent. Far from it. God is ever attentive. He is ever present in the details. And he's taking us where we would never 
go our, on our own in order to produce in us what could not be achieved otherwise. And all the while, he is working to ensure that his gracious purposes prevail. Let's pray.